Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Colorado Group Psychotherapy Society. I'm your host, Angelo Siliberti, and in this 50-minute hour, we will be featuring guests that use dynamic thinking and therapeutic interventions to bring about growth through group process. It's our hope that in listening to the podcast, you may just be inspired to think more deeply about your own experience in groups, as well as to hear what makes great group leaders tick. If you'd like to support the show, we would encourage you to leave us a review on iTunes or buy one of our recommended books through Amazon that are featured on our webpage, www.cogps.org. Also, check out our social media pages at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The links to our profiles will be in the description below. If you have any feedback for the podcast or ideas for feature guests, subjects, or panels, please feel free to email us. We're at coloradogroups at gmail.com. We really appreciate your listening and support and hope to see you at one of our events. So I'm your host, Angelo, broadcasting from beautiful Boulder, Colorado, and I'm inviting you to pull up a seat, lend an ear, and hear about what's happening in the ever-evolving circle of group dynamics. So today on the podcast, we have Jenna Noah. Jenna Noah works as a psychotherapist in Boulder, Colorado. She sees clients in person and online. Jenna received her master's degree in contemplative psychotherapy from Naropa University and is currently pursuing her PhD at Saybrook University with a specialization in existential humanistic psychotherapy. Her dissertation is focused on sexuality and female empowerment. Jenna is a member of the American Psychological Association, the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, and the American Group Psychological Association, and leads process groups around topics of sexuality. Jenna works primarily with couples and individuals around the topic of sexuality, including relationship issues, trauma, LGBTQ, gender transitions, and addictions. Jenna integrates mindful body-based awareness and somatic psychotherapy based on the principles of Hakomi into her practice. Jenna's practice is also LGBTQ and BDSM friendly. In addition to her therapeutic work, Jenna is the founder of Conscious Burlesque. Conscious Burlesque is a dance modality that helps women fire up their inner spark, evoke their sensual nature, and explore their hidden shadows. This practice allows women to find parts of themselves that have been hidden or missing for some time. Through intimate, transformative processes, individualized attention, and sacred performance, women discover what has been missing, their innate fire. Jenna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Angela. It's good it to is be here. so exciting to have you here. Yeah, it's exciting for me too. So the first question I like to ask our guests is to tell us a little bit about how they got interested in psychology and in particular group psychotherapy. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, When I was young, often friends would say, you should be a therapist. And I was really young, maybe 13, 14, all through high school. And I would always say, I don't want to do that. I have enough problems of my own. how, why would I invest time into that? Like I have my own inner work to do. And, um, and so I pursued a lot of different careers. I, um, had my undergraduate in cognitive science, which is the study of the mind, but in more academic sense, um, less psychotherapeutic. 
and it's integrative as well. So there's sociology, neuroscience, biology, sort of all together, and also was very drawn to courses in Buddhism. And then I took some time off and I actually started studying to become a Waldorf teacher, which was kind of just like a right line, like just completely away from what I had been doing previously. But the nice thing about that practice is that that type of teaching is that it's really about looking at yourself as a teacher and looking at how you can be more self-aware to better accommodate the children. Um, So it's never the child to blame for something that's going wrong in the classroom. It's actually your teaching. And so that, I think, remained a theme. Um, And I ended up for a little time at the Tassajara Zen Center um, practicing there, um, really kind of chasing the spirit of wanting to study the self. And while I was at Tassajara, I was accepted to Naropa University, and that was a deeper dive into this sort of integration of self-study and study of other and relationship. And so that's sort of the wayward path that, you know, took me to this practice, to psychotherapy. And at Naropa, there's a really strong foundation and group. And so my favorite courses were in a group setting. Um, And I think that's really because I was mirrored by so many people and I couldn't play the tricks that I could play on my individual therapists. Like there's dynamics that occur in group that just don't come up individually. And so group process has always been a really, really big piece of my own work and growth. And I see such magic happen in that collective sense um, in the room. Mm-hmm. So so there was kind of less room to hide in your group experiences? So that- much less room to hide. Yeah, so much less room to hide. And And the nice thing is there's also this idea that, you know, as one person's doing their healing, everyone's impacted by it too. So it's not just that you're not hiding. It's that if you're doing the work, you're vicariously kind of transmitting that to other people or receiving it from other people as they're doing it. And so there's this mutuality that's really um, inspiring to Mm. me. It's like everybody's therapeutic work deepens at the same time or gets an opportunity to at least. Exactly. And one person's risks impacts another person. So if someone's really vulnerable in a group, then I may feel more safe to then be vulnerable too. Or if I take a risk, I notice how that impacts others. And so there's like a, a communal act of healing happening rather than just a dyadic act. So it was really those experiences at Naropa that gave you the inspiration to pursue group more? Absolutely. Yeah. Some of my um, favorite teachers, Bob Unger and Jeff Price and Francis Kukowskis, Elizabeth Olson, all of them were really big, um, big inspirations for me to continue to step in. And then my relationship with AGPA, um, the American Group Psychotherapy Association began then. And I was a student and I would go and I would realize that I had more skills than I really realized being with tons of therapists and psych- um, psychiatrists from all over. And it it's just always so inspiring. And I mm-hmm. learned so much. Kind of confidence boosting, it sounds like. Yeah, confidence boosting. And it's like a full meal, you know, like where you might get a taste or a, you might get close in individual therapy. There's just like this sense of fullness um, that I really find myself receiving time and time again in professional relationships, professional groups, and also in individual groups, mm-hmm. um, and also leading groups. It's very inspiring being a group leader. Um, I'm not so, you know, uh, I don't know, clinical to say that I'm not impacted by it. Really noticing the healing that happens in front of me in those groups is, is uh, it gives me a reason to get up in the morning, mm-hmm. I would say. Well, and I was also struck by what you said about your Waldorf training, mm-hmm. that if something's happening in the classroom that really has to do with the teacher and how the teacher is leading the course. Yes. What a wonderful metaphor or um, kind of preparation for group process. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And for therapy in general and for inner work in general and also for 
really relating to your own triggers as your own responsibility on uh-huh. some level rather than blaming you know this little child who essentially came into the world i mean ideally perfect and then with imperfect parents and their own experiences but like what can we do as individuals to continue to accommodate difference and accommodate things that we're maybe not necessarily comfortable with and how much can we take that on and really look at what we can do to, to be more expansive and hold more uh-huh. rather than put that on a five-year-old <laughs> to adapt to our norms so. well and when i think about um kind of your signature with group and so many of the things that you really value and specialize in i think about uh, female empowerment i think about the ways you work with sexuality uh, the ways you work with difference uh, and then also the existential pieces that you mentioned from Saybrook. So would you be willing to say a little bit about how you got interested in each of those areas, kind of working with sexuality yeah, and humanism in particular? Yeah. So in my clinical training program, um, and like I said, it was one of the most transformative experiences of my adult life. So I don't say lightly, like I don't give crit- criticism lightly to the program because for me it was actually incredibly powerful. But one of the things that it was missing was clear teaching and education around sexuality. It was just sort of not there. And when we brought it to administration that it needed to be there, there was a lot of talk around, you know, credit hours. And it's actually not a requirement in the state of Colorado. And it is a requirement in the state of California, which is where I'm from. So um, our cohort was really, there was a lot of energy there. There was a lot of like, there's sort of this like sexual elephant in the room that was like vibrant and not being talked about. And um, that posed a lot of challenges, I think, for us as a group. And it also um, inspired me to sort of delve more into the study of sexuality. And so I was on a meditation retreat, which is required with that program. And I was like, I want to create this group. I just want to create this group where this is what we're going to do. We're going to explore this and we're going to explore it through movement and through conversation. And I had no idea what I was doing. And so half of the group were therapists in my training program and half of the group were dancers in my, in this dance studio that I was dancing at alchemy. And so this combination of a group, I was muddling through trying to learn to lead a group with very few skills, really and very little training. Like I had just watched my own professors and had attended, I mean, several groups at that point. This was probably my second year at Naropa, but I was really a novice. And so it was actually a really I look back on it as this like kind of bumbling phase of learning about group dynamics and learning about boundary and learning about, especially in that type of a group, like how important it is and how to create them to eliminate challenges. And there were challenges. I, um, you know, I can definitely go into those if you want at some point, but, but it was such a deep, deep learning process for me and everyone there. And they became conversations around topics that are harder to talk about, like jealousy, like, um, body image, um, like, um, you know, a lot of conversation around gender, gender transitioning, gender fluidity, fluidity, um, many conversations around polyamorous lifestyle. Um, and it became sort of a sacred holding space for those conversations. And that was, um, that was amazing. I mean, that was the, that was the impulse and that's sort of where it stemmed from and that's where it grew out of. But I also think I grew out of it too. And a lot of my understanding of relationships and primarily now I work with mostly women. And so a lot of my understanding of female dynamics um, and female identified people, like how that, how that all plays out. And some of the shadow of that has been always on the forefront. Mm -hmm. So you really kind of saw a vacuum in this portion of the educational experience that you were having that 
all of these kind of things were in the unsayable and needed to be addressed, but they weren't being addressed or adequately. And you took that as an opportunity to just really go for it, to yes. jump and to explore it and to just see what happens. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 It's like a giant experiment. A giant experiment, yeah. right. Well, and I'm curious, Jenna, to hear your thoughts about what makes those kind of topics so verboten? Why why do we experience those topics as so forbidden or so difficult to discuss, so shame-laden? I'd be curious to hear any of the thoughts that you have on um, what do create those kind of resistances to talking about sexuality, to talking about jealousy, gender fluidity, all of those kinds of things? It's a great question. And it's um, one that I don't think just impacts us here in America. I think it impacts the world on a national scale. And I have really personal, pretty strong opinions about it, um, primarily because I think sex is used as a form of control. And um, women have been controlled by their bodies and by sexuality for hundreds of years. Um, and it wasn't until, like the feminist movement couldn't begin until birth control existed, for example. And female pleasure wasn't even mapped in the field of sexuality until the 30s. Female orgasm wasn't even considered important. And so this is like an old, this is really old, what we're working with. Um, still in the field of psychotherapy, I think sex therapy still can have this kind of stigma a little bit, depending on the groups that you're in. And so I think one piece is this piece of power. And um, I can't say that I know everything about it. I feel like it's an ever unfolding process. But what I can say is that it's incredibly important. And the more that I learn, the more that I realize it doesn't just impact women as individuals or us as a culture. It impacts politics. It impacts war. It impacts violence. It impacts like the cycles of um, impact from that type of coercion or control or um, marketing or even corporate, like cor the incorporation of one's sexuality is really big business that is often masculine run and run by large groups of um, the patriarchy. And it leads to competition dynamics among women. I mean, I could go on and on, like it's an incredibly vast topic, but I think some of these, this power has played out and it plays out in our media. It plays out in this idea that you have to choose between being a good wife or a whore. Like there is that sort of dichotomy. And then, you know, it fascinates me still. Like sex is a pretty basic act, like by all beings in order for survival. And so there's something kind of, benign actually about it in one sense and then there's all this like provoke like the provocateur around it and so you know I, I guess I ask myself that question a lot and I have a lot of thoughts about it but they're still I think being formed and I'm still surprised daily on how much it really actually relates to and um, profoundly influenced by when someone gets that power back the type of choices and the way that they actually transform and make those changes in terms of owning their own power and being able to choose it and be able to ask for what they want and get what they need. And it relates to so many things. Um, so I say it's like a, it's like a small, like pie piece of pie, but it also is sort of infinite in its um, impact. It touches everything. It touches so many different aspects of our life. Yeah. Yeah. I could, I mean, I do, I work with individuals and it's like, it's grief work, it's relationship work. It's, you know, it's, there's so much shame related to it. I mean, it's everything. So there's no, it's not like just one piece. It's just so all encompassing. Right. You know, I'm associating to a quote as I hear you talk, which is, um, everything is about sex except for sex. Sex is about power. Mm, Are you familiar with that quote? I am not. But it, it uh, touches something of what you're saying in the way, um, power has been 
taken from women, if I'm hearing you accurately. Uh, women have been through for, for generations processes of objectification and power over. And some of what you specialize in your work is really helping women to reclaim um, themselves, their power, their sexuality. Yes, and reclaim their no and reclaim their, like, reclaim their discernment and reclaim their connection to their body so that they know even when they're experiencing a no in their body. I think a lot of it runs so deep that so many people don't even know what they need. Like uh -huh. so many women I work with, they don't know, even know how to ask for the, like, basically what they need because they can't even feel what they need because they're so disconnected from their bodies. And then they're told that their bodies should look this certain way. And those mm -hmm. messages are fed to us like every single day. And so it's, really, it's, it's connected very deeply, I think, to body image as well. And I would say we live in a really specific, like special period of time where this work is even allowed to exist. I think I would have been hung 200 years ago for doing what I do. I think I still skate a fine line a little bit because I am a psychotherapist. And then I'm also practicing this form of group conversation and burlesque, right? So there's this, so there's stigma still, you know, mm -hmm. in today. And then if I were in another country, for example, like I'm really interested and pulled to international work. And that's kind of the next step for me is doing some work overseas in Cambodia um, and working with victims of sex trafficking and um, potentially doing some work in Uganda um, with refugees. And, and so there is like, we are so blessed. And I mean, we did a show last year that was in a church. And I'm like, I said, as I began the show, like we would be hung in so many countries for dancing this way in a church or for embodying ourselves or for making our claims about who we are and how we want to show up and mm -hmm. to be applauded you know, on a general scale for stepping into that in this space in Boulder in particular is a very specific culture and a very open-minded culture. Um, but that's not like that everywhere. We have a certain degree of privilege. Mm -hmm. So I'm also struck by you kind of really mentioning there's almost two aspects to yourself. There's the psychotherapist and then there's the part of you involved in the conscious burlesque. Mm -hmm. And in, in a, some kind of sense, it's almost like two entities or two different selves that mutually inform one another. Well, it's interesting because there's not like, I want to say that they're two different selves, but, and I think maybe when I started, it was that way, but more and more, like my understanding of like sexuality based on this, these experiences I've had and based on seeing so many people transform, it just re relates directly to my clinical practice. Like mm -hmm. I'm every day I'm surprised. Like, we're talking about identity. We're talking about, um, let's just say, like a man who's identified as male at birth um, is stepping into his identity, um, her identity as a, as a female and exploring that edge and all of the things that come up around it. It's not a different conversation than finding your power and your sexuality. It's actually sure. a similar, really similar conversation. And so I would say the blessing of all of the different work that I do is I show up in you know, in this other space as well. Like I show up in the conscious blessed world and I'm leading group. I mean, I'm leading groups and we don't call them psychotherapeutic groups because that's not what they are, but they are incredibly deeply held with a lot of intention. And so I don't see it as two separate selves right now, mm -hmm. um, but I do feel like that's been a process for me. Well, that's what I think I'm, I'm so curious about is the mutuality uh, bec between these two contexts, mm -hmm. really, um, and how being how your background in psychotherapy influences or informs the work that you do with conscious burlesque, mm -hmm. how that kind of shows up in your thinking or the ways that you facilitate or lead. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it shows up from everywhere, from just having really clear boundaries from the beginning of a container of time, a container of um, a commitment, a contract, and that contract isn't around 
therapy, but it's around this, like, this isn't your therapy, but this could be therapeutic. Huh. But I think all that I've learned in, it's, it's impossible for it not to bleed in because I like right now I'm in Hakomi training. I've done PAX training. I've done training at Naropa. We start with mindfulness, meditation, dropping into the body, feeling where we are. I mean, those practices are the same that I begin a psychotherapy session with. Um, and this is a group that's sort of formed around sexuality and often comes in trembling. I often, I lead a lot of workshops in this and their five week experiences and people come in nervous and they come in similar to my psychotherapy practice, nervous and these things that they're maybe hiding or not wanting to say, or it's, they've never told anyone in their entire lives. And I, so there's a lot of parallel. I mean, um, I'm holding it as a, as a space for people to really do that work. And, um, I'm showing up as a professional and they do in both spheres, like the deepest work. And I am continually in awe. And like I said, being impacted by that and I have no shame, you know, saying like, I am so fed by seeing my clients do their work. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's just where I am over and over again, grateful that this career found me or I found it. And this is what I do. But yeah, there's no way I can't like parse myself out of the equation. I can't parse my trainings out of the equation of other space. Um, so it's, okay, and why would you want to, and why would I want to, I mean, I would right. say one of the things like lately that our group in terms of, um, the dance performance piece is doing is doing more political activism. And so that is very much more explicit than it would be in a therapeutic, like more, I would say more of like parts of myself in that way don't enter the room overtly and they do enter it overtly in terms of conversation around, um, sexism, oppression, patriarchy, the political climate currently, like those are themes that get more clearly directly related to, and they might be similar in the, um, you know, in my therapeutic work one-on-one, -on -one, but they're more nuanced mm -hmm. and that isn't always as overt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I find that so interesting, inspiring what you're doing with uh, the political activism and how you're weaving in sexuality and female empowerment. Yeah. I'd be curious if you'd say more about um, what's that looking like as far as those activist um, experiences that you guys are hosting or doing. I mean, I'm so excited about this. So I'm glad you're asking. I mean, we are each of the performers is creating a dance piece. And, and normally there's a dance piece that's created and it's based on some aspect of self that maybe has been disowned, disavowed, or some something that someone wants to live into. So often those are stories in the workshops around divorce or sexless marriages or um, stepping into and um, kind of unraveling stories of trauma and finding a new solution that maybe wasn't possible before. Like that often can happen in a workshop. This particular kind of new vein has been all related to politics. And so there's a sense of like, if we could have the world anyway, what would it be? And what that what is happening in the cur current political climate for each particular person, each individual dancer is something that they do not want to tolerate or bear anymore. And that they feel very strongly that what's happening is wrong on a, on a biological, like felt sense level. And so it's giving these women an opportunity to stop sleeping or ignoring or um, pushing away what's actually happening and giving them an opportunity to, in this theoretical kind of um, stage space where anything is possible, giving them a new narrative that in a world that they would like to create. And so that's really powerful and potent. It's a, um, it's like taking what's challenging and creating a new meaning out of it um, and transforming what is like stuck and hard and like unbearable um, and making it into something that feels more digestible and more empowered and more, um, 
more conscious of all people, like the collective. Uh, and that has been like really, really, really exciting for me mm -hmm. to see that. It sounds like it's just a really, um, it's, it's a potential space for participants to really engage their desire, mm -hmm. to have room to make contact with it and to um, play with it and to express it. Yes. Yeah. And I think what happens, and I think what's really unique about this that's like needs to be highlighted is that there is this way, there's like the right brain and the left brain, right? And like, so if you just go into a talk therapy session and you're just retelling the same story and like, you can only get so far, but in this world where you can create anything, where anything is actually possible and you come into it, not even really considering yourself as like a small self, you consider the idea of this maybe higher self or this character. And so you're creating a stage presence that has attributes that you don't have. It has like, let's just say someone comes in and they're really insecure and this character is confident and this character is sexually empowered and this character says no when she wants to and um, says yes when she wants to and enjoys her pleasure, which maybe might not be the, the truth of the small self, right, that enters the room. And so there's this like lived into imagination that is so important and I don't think can be highlighted enough. And I think this is also probably why art therapy is incredibly effective is there's this potential and it's not limited to our stories that bound us. It's um, it's more vast than that. And time and time again, the qualities of this sort of created or fantasy self become imbued qualities to, of the individual. And that's magic for me. I mean, mm -hmm. that's like seeing transformation. Mm -hmm. And um, I can say like for myself personally doing the work, like I have personally overcome so many challenges. Like my character is Madame Mercy and she's confident and she um, doesn't have this story around body image of my past, you know, that used to really bind me when I was younger. And that's been a lot of work, but more and more like that's the, you know, that's the magic. Like that's the gift is that the stage actually becomes sort of a shamanic act, if you will, a transformational experience where you can be witnessed in a new form of reality that you're creating and you're never calling it like, oh, I'm going to see my therapist and work through this trauma. And, and yet there's a transformation that happens and it's not, um, I think therapeutic in a linear sense, it's therapeutic in a, anything's possible and it may not happen for anyone, you know? So it's sort of like, on behalf of the person, like what they decide, what they choose to work on and what they choose to look at. And I mean, time and time again, and this is off, this is what my dissertation is actually more directly about right now is um, seeing this process and seeing how, in fact, it is therapeutic and um, seeing ways of translating that work into a more a container that burlesque is the wrong word. I mean, this is not what we're doing, but there's no word that's been created yet for what we're doing. And so it's my job to find that language. Mm -hmm. That word. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm just struck by all the parallels. I mean, it really is a group that that's happening in this modality. It's a group where people are invited to embody a particular character and then engage from that character's subjectivity with the rest of the audience and with the rest of the group. Yeah, absolutely. And people have said to me, and I didn't even really, I don't think I even really knew it. They're like, I come here in my character, like come in character, like I come with, I choose this other self when I enter here. And I might be struggling with like X, Y, or Z, but when I'm in this space, I'm offering this gift or I'm, I'm, I'm stepping into this role. I'm stepping into this like higher self or, you know, call it what you will character. And then everyone's influenced by it. Like it's like a little wildfire that starts, you know, it starts with like a match and then it's just boom. Like mm -hmm. everyone's feeling this ignited passion and stepping into their like 
this other way of learning. And I learn a lot just from listening. I mean, that's like, I learned so much from just holding the container, holding the space. Um, and it lights me up mm. to do it. Mm. Yeah. Would you be willing to say how you lead somebody who's interested in this in defining their character? Well, there's a meditative exercise we do, and it's um, absolutely. I mean, I think part of it is like it kind of can unfold over time and it can change over time. And I often say that, but we do an exercise of imagination, of imagining. And it's from the eye of the character. And so I have to often say that, like, this is like, it's easy to go into your what your actual story is. But it's like a narrative of of understanding the history of this character. And if and in your fantasy of this character, who does this character hang out with? What is their family life like? Do they have siblings? What period of time are they from? Um, when, when did they start menstruating? Like, what was their first sexual experience like? What was their first kiss like? Did they tell anyone? How were they treated when they started menstruating? Were they celebrated for it or were they shamed for it? I mean, like, they're recreating the story, right? And then often throughout that, the real life can kind of bleed into it. But it's this kind of huge narrative piece around, like, how did you come to be in this moment if you lived your whole life as the, it, as the character self? And so that is a big piece of it. And then there's a lot of writing exercises and sort of uncovering, um, you know, what are the working themes? I mean, I guess the the unasked question is, like, what are the what are the themes that you're looking to transform? But that's not being asked. It's more like, what who is this person? Like, if you could have anything, what would you have? Like, what have you not been doing? Like, what have you been neglecting in yourself? Like, what are you looking to cultivate? What's one of your, you're not asking this, Angelo, but it's like, what is the core issue, you know, that you are looking to overcome? And so mm -hmm. you're just, but you're just framing it in the positive. So it's like, what are you, what is this, who is this, mm -hmm. who is this person? Like, you can do anything. You can have anything. Yeah. And maybe, you know, Jenna is X, Y, or Z and Madame Mercy is this fierce French Russian that wields a cracking whip. Mm-hmm. And I can say that over time, I've stepped more into that. And I see that every day with the people that I work with. So does that kind of give you a little insight into that? It really does. Yeah. 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 So there's exercises and it's a very like kind of tight. Um, I mean, because I've been doing it for six years now, it's a really tight kind of program. And so people just, it's like a five week, the five week workshop kind of gives you that initial sense. And mm -hmm. then what you see, if you've worked with someone for a really long time, like there's some people I've been working with for five years or years and um that changes over time mm -hmm. what do you see flexibility i mean over and over again i see confidence i see connection i see relationship which is something you would probably see in a typical therapeutic group you see um you know you see these real friendships build and even in the people that i lead in this workshop that's five weeks people come out with like lifelong friends um people we talked a little bit about the divorcee but i think that population can't be you know, under t spoken about that often people that are coming out of marriages that have not been sexually empowered, like there is like a hunger for finding one's body again and finding oneself and finding one's sexuality. And so I've worked with a lot of, and a lot of the people that I work with, it's incredibly confidential. And so, you know, that's the other piece that's similar is that like, there's so many people in this town and, in and I've worked online with a lot of people too, that like, it can't be public information that I've worked with them. Um, but they were wanting to do this work and finding their, their sexual power. And, um, and sometimes that means, um, kind of working with the individual who wants to find more and access more sexuality. Sometimes that means less. Like I've worked with a lot of, um, former strippers that might be working on, um, they might be continuing to work on stepping in, but it might be that they're interested in kind of 
a containment that would allow for more discernment about when um, and um, how there's like a maybe a reveal. It's like a metaphorical reveal in a sense. I work with people who are cutters and just it's never like a requirement that someone would like reveal everything. But there's this metaphorical reveal of taking off a sweater and showing one's scars. And that is so big. Right. And so there's no like pressure on my end. Like, I don't care whether someone does a reveal or not, which is why it's different burlesque. I'm like, keep all your clothes on. I don't, this is not about that. This is about what, what edges and what layers are you peeling off um, in this metaphorical sense that you're wanting to get rid of and you're wanting to transform and you're wanting to change. Mm -hmm. And what do you want to be witnessed in and seen in, in that? Mm -hmm. So, so it's just a really powerful opportunity to reintroduce oneself to, to create even a different self that really has what a person most closely desires or wants to experiment with a totally different aspect of their being. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And so and for some people, it's like, I want to try, I want to experiment with um, a threesome or with, um, I'm really attracted or I want to explore, my character is really attracted to women, right? Like, so it's like you can explore anything you can explore. And then that can be kind of a gateway, a really safe gateway into having more genuine lived experiences every day in your life. Mm -hmm. if, if that's, you know, if that's of interest, like if that continues to live on and often I find that it does. Yeah. Yeah. It, so then it, I find myself really curious, like in um, process groups, there are the inevitable obstacles or resistances that come up to developing those kind of relationships or having the emotional closeness that we might be hungering for. Mm -hmm. And I find myself interested in this context um, when obstacles, unconscious resistances, any of those things do inevitably come up, perhaps shame or feeling a person feeling like they want this thing, but they don't have the permission to really go after it. How do you see yourself in that kind of leadership role working with those kind of obstacles or resistances? Yeah, I, you know, there's a, this idea of sort of an erotic edge or a, um, or, you know, you reach your edges and you have like a risk you might want to take there's a risk you might want to take and it requires a lot of safety. And so I fall more in the camp of, I guess, like Bujan Tal or um, in that, like, I trust resistance a lot. I probably maybe over lean into resist, like trusting the resistance until there's an innate desire to transform because being in a group is actually pressure enough. There's a group pressure. And so <clears throat> my interventions, maybe psychotherapeutically, there may be some more dystonic interventions, but I would say in this culture, because of the amount of sensitivity around these topics, the biggest and most important thing is always creating safety, um, just like any group, you know, and, um, and trusting that, like, if someone's having an experience, really honoring it, and usually the unflowering of the individual organically can find its way. And if there is, and if that's not the case, and if there's some type of resistance that's like, unbearable, like, there is a way of raising awareness about it and having it be a choice. But I, I really strongly fall into the category of consent and wanting consent in this type of relationship and in all relationships. And so that's a big sort of theme of all of the work that I do is like honoring your own yes and your own no. And time and time again, I find that people find that in their own, in their own way, in their own time. I don't have to do much nudging or, um, you know, it's like, you just, you just trust where people are. And, um, and when they're ready, they take those leaps, mm -hmm. you know, especially in an environment where other people are taking leaps. Like there's, I presume there's a, you know, a safety that gets created and seeing that. Mm -hmm. So Wonderful. Yeah. What have you seen in terms of um, partners, the, the experience of somebody who's going through this modality or, or this kind of experience, this workshop, 
and the experience of the partner to that person, or even I would imagine if you have some poly people, uh, multiple partners, how are they engaged or what have you noticed in terms of what it's this is so like? It's so interesting because I would say in the workshop, like it's not enough time to have like large dynamics around that arise because it's such a tight five week container. And I know that the partners are being impacted because the people will say, you know, I'm bringing this to my partner or they'll often be doing it. Like we ask often, like, who are you dancing for? Are you dancing for yourself? Are you dancing to be witnessed? Are you dancing for your partner? And without really a judgment around what's right or wrong, like, you know, like it could be any combination of those things. But I see it in the long range experience of um, the partners that are partners of people that I'm working with over a long, long, long period of time. And there's a certain intimacy and there's less of a tight container because there is performance space, which gets blurrier than a tight container of a five week group um, where the partner is actually somehow peripherally part of this group. And because of that, there's more and more training that we're offering partners. Like this has been actually a really recent conversation is that how can people who have been in this community for like five years talk about the impact? Because I think for some partners, there's a lot can come up. Like you can feel jealous or you can feel um, not included or you can feel really excited and want to like grab all the candy in the candy store. <laughs> I don't know. I think it could bring up a lot of different experiences for partners like over a long time. And and so that education is really important. And I am leaving it more to the people who've been partners to start tr talking about that and training because I haven't ever been a partner. You know, mm -hmm. I've been in it. So, um, but I know that it, it does have an impact and often that's positive. Um, and sometimes that might be bring up more things than just positive like my partners now has their sex real fire like there's probably a lot more that goes on over time and mm -hmm. i've seen that and so i would imagine that would just be so rich because of like the unconscious roles that people take in relationship or like the unconscious norms that get established and then all of a sudden a person's going through this kind of experience and they're exploring new aspects of their being and they're being challenged in these very provocative ways and um just taking new risks and the ripple effect of that within the relationship and the ways that might stimulate and excite, the ways that might uh, create fear and um, resistance or avoidance in the partner. It just, yeah, I think. I mean, a be... lot of people have come like pre -engaged, or engaged and then like wanting to take this, this, this piece that they create or this character into their honeymoon. That's been really sweet, right? Like, cause they're like, I want to create this dance and I want to create it for my partner. And at the end of the five weeks, there's the last day, which is a closed um, performance. And the closed performance is where you invite one loved one, maybe two loved ones. So it's a very, very intimate container. And you show this dance to this really small group that's of outsiders. And their task is primarily to witness and to celebrate these people. Um, and so it's a really sweet thing to see partners come to that and to see this person kind of like in this new eyes or through even the eyes of the other, we could say, mm -hmm. of seeing like other people take them in and seeing them in this power and this beauty and um and it's optional but everyone ends up doing it it's part of the medicine i think is being witnessed mm -hmm. yeah. oh that's just that's incredible just gives me chills yeah. it's amazing yeah. so here you have this uh phenomenally rich experience in, in conscious burlesque and then i'm curious how that experience kind of shifts or has uh, impacted you as a as a psychotherapist and as a group psychotherapist where the context and the venue is much more to have things in words i um i mean i would say i personally feel and i'm being i think 
more and more people comment on this. So it must be true, right? Like they're getting all this feedback about me being perceived as this like embodied projection of like being incredibly embodied. I feel more embodied, but I think I've been noticing it more as like um, people in groups will just comment on that sense. So that I think it does inform a bit of my projective identity in that space. Um, but like all things, I think over time, it's the the amount of conversations that we've you know it's been conversational and so like i like i say again it's like this group portion we do it for an hour and a half every week you know it's you know it's like it's just part of my language and then there's this other piece that's informed me and who i am and i come and i believe i really strongly believe that a lot of healing co comes through the body and that um like i said i don't believe that talking is enough. And I, I find that even in my, um, you know, my psychotherapy practice with Hakomi, a really body-based, body-sensed, like intuitive thing. I think we have patterning that we are unconscious to actually on a verbal channel that lives in our physical bodies and is imprinted there from the time that we're very young based on many, many, many experiences and tuning in like to the body. Not even, I'm not, we're not even speaking to dancing right now. We're speaking, just closing your eyes feeling what's alive in you, noticing the parts that are contracted and the parts that are open and getting information about how those patterns are always playing out in your day-to-day -day life is incredibly important. And so um, it's never just talk for me um, in the therapeutic seat. Mm -hmm. um, it's always an embodied practice. It's just, there's different ways of getting to, you know, there's just different ways of being. And I see them as different, like almost different offerings mm -hmm. um, because the conscious burlesque isn't therapy. There's more liberty. There's more liberty. There's more play. There's more, um, you know, it's and more people come to it and they, they would never go to therapy. They just want to play. Mm -hmm. And that's like emphasized as important, mm -hmm. important for healing and important for health and important for being dynamic and connected. And we lose that as adults. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't always get to do that in therapy with my one-on-one -on -one clients because that's not always like the frame or the focus and um you know adult play therapy might be the untapped well <laughs> <laughs> like what you know how can we allow adults to continue to play and to learn through playing and to make mistakes and not take it so seriously mm -hmm. um and in the um you know in the group setting a lot of it is tuning into what's really alive in the present moment mm -hmm. and alive in the bodies of the participants yeah so i'm hearing that you might even are uh continually focused and aware of both your body as well as the bodies of the group members in keeping a portion of your awareness on what the lived experience of the body is and what it might be communicating beyond the words yeah all the time and i find my body to be a barometer and i trust that like i trust the body i think um you know often there's, you know, we talk of exchange or this, these parallel processes that happen both in our experience and the client's experience. And that's a, you know, a lived experience. And I don't cut myself out of the room. Like I think many modalities think of the therapist as a blank slate and I am listening to my body and very, 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 very closely for important information that if I wasn't, like I would miss, I would miss even in studying, um, you know, studying the way that the words land in me. Someone can be saying something like, I, um, yeah, I really love him. 
you know, and if you don't study the tone and you don't study the facial expression and you don't, then you're missing like, oh, well, he t- she totally loves her partner. And that meant that there's so much more in people that is not verbal. Like it's happening microseconds. It's happening right now between us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am watching my body and seeing and noticing it and noticing yours and seeing how there's a feedback loop happening. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I think that I'm trained to do that. Like I'm very closely trained to be watching mm-hmm. so that I have the opportunity to, to not miss things. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching in the sense too, that you see people out of their context, you see people in the lived world, you know, and all of that is information. Like, I think we often don't give ourselves permission to just see everything. And I think that's a continual practice of mine. It's just allowing, you know, um, you can go back to my relationship with you, like how I see you in your professional life, how I see you in these professional spheres, how I see you and have coffee with you, you know, so I can, so all of that becomes information of the wholeness of an experience, um, that I'm, I am really working to continue to expand and to track. Continue to track, expand, digest. And it sounds like just, you really use that as a way of informing your appreciation for the people you're working with. And And I'm very comfortable being wrong. I mean, this is the other thing is you have to just be like, well, I was wrong, right? Like I have a hunch that that smile on your face is an indicator that you're having a good time right now. Am I right? Oh, I'm not right. Okay. What's really happening for you? Like that can be part of the conversation. It's kind of always like adapting and there's always a new learning happening. Um, but I really rely on the client to show me where they want to go and what's, what's alive and what's the next step rather than assuming I know. Mm -hmm. And I'm taking all of those little thoughts that come, those little light bulbs and putting them in my mind and checking them out every once in a while, Mm -hmm. um, to see like, is this it or is it more like this? Or am I totally off? But allowing the client to come forth into that that mm-hmm. power is essential. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just thinking about just the the broader context of the world we're living in right now, and just how crucial and essential this work really feels. And so I wonder, where do you see yourself going, and what are your hopes for your career, and where you see yourself expanding and growing moving forward? Well, I re- I guess I would say I'm really lit up by the idea of formulating this in a more kind of concise, digestible, like this work and seeing how it applies to other places and other people. I think um, like right now I'm working on a team of um, people with um, a new kind of entity called Naropa International, and we're going to be going to Cambodia and working with victims of sex trafficking. Um, I've worked overseas in China and Malaysia before, and so I have some international training but this is a very new group and this is more in the area of the population that I really, really, really care about. And so for me, the empowerment of the feminine and the, and the ownership of one's own body and sexuality, it, it traverses borders. And I have a a strong desire to be able to study it and to study the differences and the cross-cultural differences and um, the ways in which it's informing a lot of different places that are less privileged than I am, because it's easy to kind of, you know, be in this view. I minimize this and I, you know, I don't, it's kind of a humorous thing I do to point out my own privilege, but you're, you know, you're with like predominantly white population in Boulder, a predominantly incredibly privileged population. Like, and then we're celebrating the body, which it cannot be taken for granted. And yet like there are people that are tied to beds right now and aghast things, children are happening to them every day. And so I, I always have to kind of think of them, the, what I'm doing on the ground here. And then also the macro and how I can 
continue to expand and offer my gifts to other places with a lot of cultural sensitivity. Like I'm not this like, I'm not on this like hero's journey to change the, you know, <laughs> without being really informed, but to learn more and to study more and to study the ways in which this is a bigger dynamic. I mean, as it arises even for people of Islam and um, the women of Islam and um, there's the like, sex slavery doesn't only impact women, it impacts men too. Like this, these types of oppression um, impact the family. And I was even talking to a woman who does a lot of, she's starting to do sexual empowerment work in Islam. And it's really, really profound to me. But she's telling these stories of like people she's interviewed and these men that are in mosques and they look at, glance at a woman and then are shamed for it. And these men are saying to her, why wouldn't I join ISIS? I promised 14 virgins in heaven and four wives. Like, why wouldn't I join ISIS? So I don't think it's to belittle, like, how actually important this is. Like, this is this is impacting terrorism. Like, who knew, right? Like, I think the more I learn, the more I realize, like, there are so, there's so much that this is related to. And I feel like it's a vast and continued unfolding. And I'm just looking to to be of service in areas that are that are in the most need while being the most culturally sensitive um, and conscious. So inspiring, Jenna. It's really like bodhisattva activity. Yeah. I and mean, I feel more and more like that. that is, that's, a, that's the call. Yeah. yeah. Wanting to bring this to international, to the international level, to the international community and underprivileged populations. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And, and adapt it in a way that's, like I said, culturally sensitive, but um, is the most, is the most digestible and most useful or readily usable. And mm -hmm. I think that definitely includes components of mindfulness and components of group components in, of embodied practice, whatever that is. And this characterization feels to be significant. And that's a lot of what my dissertation work is doing. Mm -hmm. um, so it really bleeds together, mm -hmm. those pieces. Well, in, in one sense, I mean, our, our final question on the podcast tends to really be to address an edge. Uh, I think in some ways you maybe just started answering that, but I do find myself in the midst of everything we've just talked about, and it's been so rich, everything we've we've covered in this interview, I feel like there's so much more for us to... To, to, to still say and talk about, but I'm curious, what would you see right now as your particular edge as a group leader um, or however you associate to that? As a group leader. Well, what I can say is a personal edge. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm, I know it applies to being a group leader because I think all feeds into one, but I keep having these really vivid dreams about clarifying my agenda, like about choosing, about making, narrowing my path and that I think is the task of also a PhD program, but it's a task of me because I am very gifted to be invited to be parts of many projects and to be part of many developing themes. And so I'm finding like that honing my craft and honing in on my specific offering is like, it takes a lot of um, refinement and a lot of, you know, a lot of saying no or yes, maybe later. And, um, I get really kind of bombarded, like just business opportunities and the ideas come at, come, come to me or, or come from the outside to me. And I get a little seduced, we might say. Um, and so for me, my working edge is just continue to refine and to continue to clarify like what my offering is to the world and to, and to deliver it. And, um, without, because time is limited, time is short and, um, 
you know, there's, there's just this really impermanent nature of things. You get one life. And so that's my biggest challenge right now. Mm. Wonderful, Jenna. Yeah. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. It's so wonderful to interview you and to hear these insightful things you had to say. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity, Angelo. It's a pleasure.